0: People shift their behavior through desperation or inspiration. And I was desperate when I was on my mom's couch. So you're willing to do things. Inspiration is the ability to visualize a compelling future like Steve Jobs did or Walt Disney. They visualize things they wanted to create. The most successful people, you know, in results like Michael Jordan, they use both.
1: Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. Our quote for today is from Walt Disney. When you're curious, you find lots of interesting things to do. Our guest today, Rock Thomas, has been described as passionately curious leader. He is the founder and CVO of Rock Thomas International, an organization that coaches others to achieve peak performance and unlock their full potential. He's a serial entrepreneur, a best selling author, a world renowned speaker, and the host of the I Am Movement podcast. Rock, welcome. It's a great to have you on the Elevate podcast today.
0: It's awesome to be here, Robert.
1: All right, so you have a unique story growing up as a self described farm boy in Canada. Uh, how did that upbringing sort of impact you then and, and today? You know, the
0: beautiful thing about growing up on a farm is that you are forced to become resourceful and the horses need to be fed, whether it's Christmas or whether it's your birthday or whether you're sick. And that translated into, I think, me becoming an entrepreneur because when everybody else is like, oh, it's time to go home or, oh, that's difficult. I was like, what do you mean? Let's just get it done. Let's finish. Let's go the extra mile. And then when I got rewarded for that, I just kept on going. So today I have over 40 streams of income, multiple businesses, and I have a skill set that isn't taught in school, but was taught in the farm. And I'm really, really grateful for that.
1: So it's interesting. I mean, I've heard people describe farm environments as, as work ethic, but not not as much entrepreneurial. Was there something different about your farm or did you, you just began to associate that effort with reward? There was something different about my father. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my
0: father would literally put us outside, lock the door and say, don't come back and you don't get breakfast until the job is done.
1: That's motivating to figure out how to do it.
0: Yeah, we, and, and every job I did, he would literally come in and inspect it. And he'd always find something that I didn't do, like, you know, you missed a spot there in painting, or you didn't patch that properly, or you left a mess in the corner. And so my brain, in an effort to avoid pain of getting that feedback, whenever I did a job, I would then scan it and kind of go like, okay, did I get everything? What, what is my dad going to say that I missed? And so when I started to go out into the working world, you imagine as a teenage kid, most teenage kids are trying to get, you know, get the most yeah. with the least amount of effort, and so I would be cleaning pools. Let's say I would get every corner and every speck, and if I had to dive in and get it myself, I would do that. So, people I would work for in the neighborhood, they would always recommend me. Oh, this boy's really good. He's responsible and resourceful. He rides in the rain on his bike to never, never doesn't show up. So I kept on getting more and more jobs. And then I started to hire my friends because I was good at lead generation. <laughs> Not, of Before course. it was
1: a thing, yeah.
0: Before it was a thing, right? So I just naturally became a leader. And again, in, in, in all my businesses, it was just go to the forefront, create value, and be solution-oriented. So yeah, my father, I think, was the difference maker in that.
1: And did you have a good relationship with your father? Or did you sort of resent him for this at the time? Sounds like he was tough. <laughs>
0: I think you have to define good relationship. I had a very good relationship if child slavery is, yeah. you know, is part of the conversation. That's my how my sister describes it. Yeah. I always wanted my dad to be proud of me. And so I always worked to make him proud. You know, my father passed away when I was in my early 30s and I didn't cry. Why didn't yeah. I cry? I didn't have a relationship with him.
1: Yeah, you know, when you I always find it interesting when you tell that story. I think a lot of passion is is born from pain and 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 while it seemed to create the right work ethic in you, I was wondering if there was a <laughs> an opposite side to that that was, yeah, that was equally as impactful.
0: I mean, I, I wish I cried. Yeah. But it's like when you hear of somebody else that on the news that passes that you don't know. You might have a moment like, Oh my God, that's terrible. They, they died this way or something. And then you move on and somebody close to you or like, I had a dog die and I I wept because I had a relationship with that dog. And sadly my father was, you know, he was a thinking person. He wasn't a feeling person and we didn't do things together. We didn't play together. We didn't build things together. I was an employee for him as a child and so I either did a good job or I did uh or I did a bad job and I rarely did a good job so so it's not good or bad it just it's, yeah it, just, it
1: is it is what it was that his relationship with his father.
0: Yeah, his father was German and they went through the war and it was tough it was survival back then and it was a completely different era and the way he processed it you know like my ex-wife was Italian they're very love Italians are very loving and yeah. a lot of culture around meals and sit around and talk and touch and connect and laugh and and the culture my father grew up in was not so much like that at all. so my father probably shouldn't have had kids, you know he did, but
1: he needed employees. it sounded like
0: yeah, I mean he he, he was so busy just trying to make a living and to solve his problems in his own head that the feeling part didn't show up.
1: so you have kids?
0: I have three kids, yes.
1: So now, as you were raising them, there's this really important value that you've obviously ingrained around doing a good job, which has been a key part of your life. How, how do you balance that with, then sort of the, the empathy and, and compassion? Was, it, was that a tough juggle, or did you figure out your own middle ground on that?
0: <laughs> a loaded question. If you ask my kids, <laughs> I am very. I was very good at making them also resourceful human beings. Yes. They had to read books and they had to do book reports and they got, and they had to speak in front of each other. They, they can all speed type 80 words a minute. Um, they walked on fire at the age of 10 at Tony Robbins events. My kids are all quite successful, resourceful, able to reframe, optimistic. They can all do public speaking. So they're very resourceful. Do they feel like they have an empathetic dad? Well, I'm still working on that part, (laughs) you know? Um, the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. I did spend a lot more time with my kids. I did yeah. coach their soccer and do a lot of things. I was a lot more playful, but I was also, when it came down to it, I was like, okay, six o'clock in the morning, come on, get up. Let's go. Let's get yeah. out. Let's go work. Let's get exercise. And I'm like, bad dad. So I had that militant part too. So this is what I said to my my kids, Robert, is my job is to be a better version than my father was to me. And ideally, your job is to be a better version than I was to you. And we each keep on being a better iteration. I can't improve and fix all the parts. I'll do my part. You do your part. And I think I did a pretty good job at that.
1: That's a good way to look at it. So what was your first sort of real job? Or did you ever even have one? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um,
0: I mean, my first job when I left, I say to people that the career choice is often because of proximity or pressure. Yeah. Sometimes your parents pressure you into a certain career path. Well, mine was proximity. My sister was dating a guy that was the manager at McDonald's. And so I got a job at McDonald's. And that was my first job outside of the farm work. And then I went on to just about everything. Bartending, waiting on tables, door knocking, driving a taxi. I acted in movies. I cut lawns. I did just about everything.
1: Renaissance man.
0: I just grew up on a farm and I was programmed to work hard. So that's what you do. You work 12, 14, 16 hours a day. I mean, by the time I was 28, I owned three properties. I was almost a millionaire. I worked 12, 14, 16 hours a day, six, seven days a week. I lived in the basement of a senior citizen home. I started at the age of 25. I was incredibly resourceful.
1: You started a senior citizen home at the age of 25. That is not something that most people do.
0: Right? I mean, imagine that buying a seven bedroom home at the age of I think, 24 and then hiring my mother, who's a social worker and my wife and the three of us ran this nine, it was just nine elderly people, but we lived in the basement. We, I had, we had no expenses, even the food and the gas I bought from my car was tax deductible because it was to run the senior citizen home. I saved $60,000 a year. This is, this is going back 30 years ago. Wow. And which is like $200,000 today. And then I started buying real estate. And I would have been way further than I am today, but my father got sick and I took care of him and then I lost everything and I started over, but you know, I was a
1: resourceful human being. So you were good at doing this stuff yourself. Uh, when did you launch your career as a coach and then a speaker?
0: So after that happened, I was back on my mom's couch in debt at the age of 30 approximately. I started a real estate career because I needed to make money quickly. I was really bad. I got really good after the second year because I had two mentors, one for my mindset and one for the technical part of real estate. Within four years, I was selling 100 homes a year and then I bought the company. And while I was running the company with 100 agents or so, I started to teach them what I had learned in real estate to sell 100 homes a year because the average agent sells
1: about Six homes a year. Yeah, I was going to say, I, th- these are residential properties?
0: Residential properties, myself and two assistants.
1: What, is that like what I don't know what the is it? That's got to be President's Club or top 0.1% of the whole country, right?
0: It's rewriting <laughs> the history books on yeah. how to do real estate. Quite frankly, right. it, was, um, it was a completely shattering what anybody had ever done. In fact, I was the first person, at least that I knew of in the industry in Canada, to, to start with a buyer's agent. Today, it's very typical. Yeah, but I was the one that broke the mold on that. I just I just kept on thinking, like, what's the best use of my time? And it was taking listings. It wasn't running around with buyers. So I said, well, I should delegate that. So I started to expand my network. And by the time I was, I guess, thirty-five or so, I realized that you can teach people the technical part, the scripts, the dialogues, and what to say in any business. But if they don't have the mindset to go with it if they can't motivate themselves, if they can't reframe themselves when things go wrong, if they don't believe that they can win and they deserve to win, if you don't nurture those parts, people will be very, very mediocre. So I start to put my focus on that in my own business and people skyrocketed to success. So even though I bought the company at 94 agents, people came knocking on the door because the results were there. I took it to 275 agents from three hundred million to a billion dollars of sales, I was making seven figures a year in my mid thirties, and then I just started decided to write a book about it and then teach people outside of my business, and that's where that that career started.
1: So I heard someone say something interesting. I, I know you've been involved in a lot of different mindset stuff and Tony Robbins around the difference between sort of inspiring and motivating other people, and I think this person said you can't can't really motivate other people. <laughs> the goal is to get them to, to motivate themselves. What, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, people shift their behavior through desperation or inspiration. And I was desperate when I was on my mom's couch. So you're willing to do things. Inspiration is the ability to visualize a compelling future like Steve Jobs did or Walt Disney. They visualize things they wanted to create. The most successful people, you know, in results like Michael Jordan, they use both. So Michael had a vision to be the greatest, but he also used opponents. Somebody would come up to his coach, would come up to him and say, you know, they've got that new young guy covering you on this game. It's going to be interesting. I think you're going to get shut out. And Michael would play a game in his own head and go, (laughs) there's no freaking way I will dominate him. And he would make things up in his head.
1: Oh, I just watched the documentary and he he made up this whole thing, this derogatory thing that a guy said at the end of a game and the next game and they and they were like the guy never said it.
0: Exactly. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. I still do it today in a in a silly way. Like I will be at the airport and I'll go in a line and I'll look at another line and I'll go, okay, that that tall guy there with the suit on, let me see if I can beat him to get through security. Or <laughs> I'll be at the grocery store and I'll be at a cashier and I'll go, okay, that person's bagging their own stuff. I'm bagging my own stuff. Let me see if I can bag it faster. Like I make all these games up. So I give meaning to things and I get excited about things. And, and Michael Jordan did it. I don't know where I learned to do it, but I do that. And then I also, at the same time, will, will create a narrative. Like, listen, you only have today to live. You could be dead tomorrow. Why not play fully out? Why not go across the street and tell that person, they have a beautiful smile. So I constantly get myself, trick myself, inspire myself to take action. Because most people, Robert, know what to do, but they don't do what they know.
1: They don't. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, you hit on something, right? The the desperation. You lose the job that you never really liked and you finally go start your own business. I'd love to hear your take on this because I think that the inspiration is hard, particularly I think midlife people get to a place where they've got some responsibilities, their income is good, they're happy, they're cruising along. It's very hard. It seems like not what's a little below good like subpar good it's very hard for people to blow that up yeah comfortable yeah. like it's it, i think the hardest and worst space for people is that sort of unhappy comfortableness where they're just not willing to blow it up and and go for what they actually know that they want to do or can do
0: yeah i mean we become conditioned to feel good to feel safe and the environment around us is like you know careful watch out You might get hurt. There's a real estate bubble. Um, Don't lose your job. Don't get hurt. So we're filled with that. You go into a room with Michael Jordan and Tony Robbins and Elon Musk and uh, Steve Jobs, and these people are all going to be step up, go for it, think big. How do we blow things up? So the narrative of the people around us becomes instrumentally important on how we're gonna define our ability or our lack of it. So I just have been fortunate enough to seek out people way smarter than me, faster than me, and it stimulates me to try to catch up to that group. And that's a big part of motivating yourself, is be around other people that wanna grab life big. And if you do that, it'll become your new normal. And I'll give you a specific example. I was in Thailand last year, for some extreme tennis uh, training. But after I would do the four-hour boot camp, I would go swimming, and beside me was the the Russian national team. And these guys were big boys. Uh, I would eat lunch sometimes around them, never spoke to them, they spoke a different language, never tried to get into their bubble. But just watching them, the way they walked, their frame, the way they swam, I swam in a lane right beside them. And I would time myself, because I would swim a half a mile or a mile, and I improved my score by twenty five percent without talking to them, without getting any instruction, but by being in proximity of them. It was awesome.
1: Well, I mean that begs a couple of things. One, I'm sure you're a fan of the Jim Rome, you know, saying that you are the average of the the five people you spend the most time with. I don't think a lot of people realize how damaging some of their group of five is that they're spending time with. But it also implies another thing that environment probably matters a lot in terms of where you put yourself, who you're around, and whether that, that environment sort of regresses to the mean or like the story you just told inspires you to want to do something better.
0: Did you ever see the movie Finding Nemo? A
1: while ago, but yes.
0: So for the people that you know don't remember that, it's a little story about a little fish basically in a small little enclave in the ocean, and then it gets swept out into the greater part of the ocean. And during that journey, discovers all these other things that she didn't know existed and all the fears and excitement and beautiful things, et cetera. And I think that in life, people live in these little cocoons trying to feel safe all the time. I started a mastermind group eight years ago, and we call it a tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people that choose to lead epic lives and don't apologize for being awesome.
1: That's a very good but long title, but that is yes. very clear what it stands for.
0: <laughs> it took us two days masterminding
1: in a retreat in
0: California up in the mountains to come up with that. So I don't say that yeah. frivolously. It's it's the way we describe it.
1: And, and can you explain to people too? Sorry, I'm just explain also for a lot of people who aren't clear what a masterminding group is or how it works, because I, I think everyone should be in one or more of them.
0: I agree. I mean, it comes from Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich and all of the successful people back in the day, the Andrew Carnegie's of the world and the Rockefellers and all these people, Ford, they basically said, look, I don't have all the solutions in life, but if I surround myself with five or 10 or 15 people that have you know, different ideas, engineers and, and smart people in different avenues, then we can build these huge companies and we can thrive. So it takes the vision and then you collective mindset of all these different minds. And then when you have an idea, you go, okay, we want to build an eight-cylinder engine. Oh, that can't be done. Okay, everybody put your brain together and figure out a way. So we created a mastermind group of people that want to lead epic lives, and we don't want to wait till we're 65 to retire and do cool stuff. We want to do it while we're young and capable to go windsurfing you know, in Chile or whatever the case may be. Yeah. In order to do that, what do you need? You need money, and you need time. So then we go, okay, well, that's our problem we're gonna solve together. What's the solution to having time and money? If you think about it, Robert, isn't that what everybody wants, freedom? Yeah. So isn't that a worthy cause to tackle as a group and say, how are we going to champion that and become the people that we could take our families around the world, we could work from anywhere, we could do cool stuff. So that's what we did. And then we started to realize that, you know, the wealthiest people in the world have basically three asset classes where are their passive income streams, real estate, business, and investments. So we accumulated people that were really good at in the stock market, people that were really good with every type of real estate, retail, mobile homes, multifamily, family et cetera. And then people that were really good in business and scaling businesses. And then every time you did something, you had access to somebody who had more experience than you. All of that, we wrapped that in you can't give up your health. In fact, we're going to push the envelope on health and we're going to become as healthy as possible. And you're going to become a better father or daughter or, or mother or son. You're going to become a better friend and you're going to become a better brother. And if we valued all those things and we all mastermind around it and we improved the five love languages and we were better listeners and we had more presence and we were healthier and we worked out more, more morning rituals and we found ways to be you know, more wealthy, that's the life i wanted to live and that i started eight years ago it's the thing i'm most proud of and today i've helped 64 people become whole life millionaires and that's what i spend my life doing it's giving people the resources to live that life if they value that
1: yeah everyone i would say find a mastermind there are there are personal ones there are professional ones but and then there are ones that cross over which i think are even more valuable so rock coaching has obviously become a pretty crowded industry. Um, I think I was talking with someone about this maybe earlier in the year on the podcast. It, it, you know, I, I always viewed sort of a coach as someone who, who did it. <laughs> and then you look to them as someone who really did it and then helped you do it. And and now it's just, it's become interesting where people who haven't done it are coaching people how to, how to do it. and, and, the standards are all over the place. So, you know, what are the principles and techniques that kind of you've used to distinguish yourself and and what's your real focus when you work with people?
0: OMG, thank you for saying that. There are so many false prophets out there that I really, really encourage people, if you're going to get coached by somebody, have somebody that has the emotional experience in the result that you want.
1: Or actual experience.
0: <laughs> right. And, and that's 100% it. And, and the reason I say emotional is that if you're going to talk to somebody that you want to run a marathon and they don't have the physical, emotional experience of what it's like to run around on the 24th mile when you got shin splints and everything is screaming at you, I don't think that's the person that you should be getting coached by. Not to say that there aren't people that maybe have studied it and have a real technical aspect that can help you, but definitely working with somebody that's been in the trenches is for me is absolutely crucial. Yeah. I learned from Tony Robbins. I've done 74 events with Tony. I've listened to him speak for umpteen hours, probably the equivalent of about three PhDs. I've watched him do interventions. And so I've on an unconscious level, you know, embodied the ways that he can do pattern interrupts. I've studied NLP, hypnosis, et cetera. So I use, I rely mostly on that. And most people in coaching, again, they know what to do, Robert. They don't do what they know. So they basically need to be woken up and then at that moment, give them an action item and be held accountable. So that's the strategy I use. It's It's effective. But I'll tell you what, the masterminds actually, in my opinion, work better. I'm going to tell you why. When you hire a coach, there's a conflict of interest that you're paying me, let's say, $1,500 an hour to coach you. At some point in time, I don't want to be a complete dick because <laughs> you might fire me or you might find a reason not to renew the contract. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Like you said you would do this three weeks in a row and you didn't get off your lazy ass and do it.
0: Right. <laughs> and I might be more animated and colorful than that.
1: <laughs> I didn't think that was particularly nice. So, so yes Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, so that becomes a conflict of interest. Then you've heard of accountability partners. That's where you and I agree to meet every Wednesday morning at a.m. and talk about our goals and hold each other accountable. And that's definitely a level up, in my opinion, because now we aren't paying each other, but we have more of the spirit of a, of a common goal in harmony. But I also found that, let's say you're busy or you're on a flight that day to go do a talk or you're visiting your grandmother or whatever. Now I'm on my own. It doesn't happen. So we found that the mastermind group and putting people into groups of 6 people where one or two people don't show up for valid reasons or they're on a plane or what have you the quorum is enough to keep everybody moving forward. Yeah. So over the years I've just refined the ways that that people transform in life and for me the mastermind is the most powerful tool.
1: So in terms of, you know, being a coach, I know one thing you've talked about too is that you've learned a lot from mentors over your career. I know a lot of people naturally want to mentor others. What are mistakes that people make when they're either trying to be a mentor or find a mentor?
0: Well, first of all, if you're going to find a mentor, here are my rules for it. Number one, it should be somebody that you respect and admire. And what I mean by that is you can have, there's a lot of people that respect Donald Trump's results, pure and simple, in that he was able to become a billionaire. So they may not admire him. They may not like his methods, but they can't argue with the fact that he got a result as an example. There are athletes that can get results, but they can be complete idiots and they're pompous and they're rude and and they'll do anything to win. Roger Federer is an elegant athlete. Uh, Andre Agassi, not necessarily so much to give an example. Number two is you need to add value to that person's life. So when I hired... Tony Robbins, the value I added is I gave him (laughs) $100,000. I've had some other people that I've done things for them. I've brought them tea, coffee, picked up their dry cleaning, washed their car, did things around the office for them at a different level. They may have been just a little bit better than me. And I wanted to learn a script or a dialogue.
1: So you need some skin in the game is what I'm hearing.
0: You got to have some skin in the game and you got to be able to show the person that you're serious because... Most mentors love to coach. They love to pass on their wisdom to people that are going to do something with it.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and, and the, the thing that's most draining probably, particularly for a mentor when on a reach is just seeing someone not using it or doing it or being accountable.
0: Yeah, because then you're wasting your time. You'd rather yeah. do something else, right?
1: Unless you're getting paid $100,000 and then that's the other person's problem.
0: True. And it's still gratifying to see <laughs> your students excel. And then if you're a mentor, some of the things that I think are crucially important is you've got to make sure that that person understands what I call the me, we, they. So ideally, they see you doing what you've been good at. So if Michael Jordan's going to get better or say Kobe Bryant, he saw Michael Jordan perform. He got to see him, and then he discussed the performance, the footwork, the the movements, the head fakes, the routines and rituals. And then he performed and then he got feedback. Right. The biggest mistake I see with entrepreneurs is they hire people, they don't let them see the standards of the way they do something. They they're overwhelmed and busy. Go do that, answer the phone, do the paperwork, upload that, do the data entry. Then they come in and they shit all over them because they don't do it the way they want, but it's really on the mentor that didn't train them properly. And then you give them feedback and then the person will hold the standard that you want to hold them to.
1: Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The shop pay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. And... I mean, should you try to find a mentor that won't have you? Like, should you try to like shoot out of your league? That's always how I felt about board members.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's not a bad thing. Yeah. I've like, I bumped into Gary Vaynerchuk and I remember I was at a hotel in, in LA not too long ago and I was like, oh shit, I was eating breakfast. There's Gary. And he was just casually ordering a coffee. I'm like, do I go up to him? Do I not? What do I say? Yeah. And you know that kind of thing you go through. Yeah, self-talk. Right. And then some other guy goes up to him like, oh, I missed my opportunity. Shoot, shoot, shoot. And um, I'm texting my girlfriend. I'm like, come down. Gary's here. And then he walks toward me. I'm like, okay. And I stepped up and got a picture with him and chatted with him and and asked him if, you know, I could stay in touch with him and work with him. And I had some ideas. And he's like, yeah, here's my personal email. And uh, so I emailed him and he never responded. But the point is, is that yeah, always ask. You never know who who's going to support you or do something with you, and you kind of work your way up the ladder. You know, you know Ed Milet. No, so he's uh, he's got um, the number one podcast for businesses uh, called Max Out, and I met him at an event, and, and then he gave me a shout out from the stage. So yeah, you've got to step up and make an impact. You got to ask and you never know where it's gonna lead to. Good advice.
1: So I've heard you mention the seven traits of success. Uh, Can you talk a little about what they are and how you help people acquire them?
0: I don't know if we'll get through them all, but first one is have a burning desire. If you don't have a burning desire for something, the obstacle will take you out. Imagine you have a GPS and you're driving along and then you hit construction and it says, okay, turn to the right, go down here. Your GPS doesn't quit and go, what? next three blocks this way, I'm out. It will keep on telling you how to get there, where to go, even if you drive the opposite way. And I think you've got to decide that you want that reward so badly, that burning desire and those ways to feed it and be surrounded by other people that encourage you. That's crucially, crucially important. Does that make sense?
1: Totally, and you know, it's interesting. This is a discussion I was having with someone yesterday at our company. Who's a little entrepreneurial and trying to decide what they want to do, which I'm totally supporting them. But I actually gave similar advice, which is there's some people who just want to be entrepreneurs. You know, they just want to work for themselves, but they don't know what to do. They don't. They don't have that idea. And I was saying similarly, you know, it's hard. It's not easy to be a mess. So you you got to believe in it enough to want to fight through it and and when it sucks and when you're making less money and all that stuff. But it occurred to me like, do you think like is just wanting to be an entrepreneur enough? Or or do you really have to believe in whatever it is? Or or is that like a mission for some people alone?
0: Well, first of all, I don't think everybody's cut out to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I think that's a mistake. People think that they need to be an entrepreneur. Some people are better as a copilot or as an employee.
1: Or an entrepreneur so, at a company, right? I mean it's
0: right. Good. Right. So that's the first thing is don't try to be something you're not and read the e-myth or uh, something like that to help identify who you are in that process. But if you are an entrepreneur, then you're going to hunger to make things better. You want to innovate. You're going to want to do things. You're going to wear a lot of hats. I think understanding which hat to wear and to stay in that lane at that time. That's a whole other conversation, Robert. All
1: right. Well, we'll we'll put a pin in that. So number two. Number two is self-discipline.
0: And I think that if you want to get things done, again, it comes back to visualization. The way that Michael Jordan demonstrated self discipline and ability to practice and to put on weight when Detroit bashed them up and stuff like that is to be able to picture the end result that you want. That makes self discipline so much easier. You know, you want to lose weight and you have a clear picture of a six pack and then the donuts in front of you and you eat it. Self discipline and willpower will work when your picture of what you want is really clear and you can emotionally connect to the benefits of it. Makes sense. Self-discipline is, is actually, I think, misunderstood by a lot of people. Oh, just They think it's depriving themselves. No, it's actually the opposite. It's clearly having a picture for what you want and then moving toward it every day and making the choices that mimic the result. Another important factor is decision-making. Most people are not good at making decisions. Successful people make them quickly and don't change them. Struggling people make them slowly and change them. So the muscle of making decisions goes back to what again? Gonna kind of see a theme here. When you know what you want, it's easy to make a decision. When you're not clear on what you want, you're like, "Um, do I want to go to that yoga class or not? I don't know. We'll go out for beers. Hmm. When you're clear, you want that six pack. When you're clear, you want to improve your, your flexibility. When you're clear that you want to live long and healthy, when you're clear that you want to have a mind-body connection, somebody goes, do you want to come to yoga class? Yes, I'd love to. That'd be great.
1: And it occurs to me that, I, I wrote on this once, I think there's people who struggle with the decision, like the decision is the ultimate endpoint. When I actually think it's how you commit to the decision, that's not that it's necessarily right or wrong. It's just whether you just commit commit and go with it.
0: Yeah, I would agree. That would would be fair to say. Yeah. And committing comes back to emotionalizing it because most people, you know, like, yeah, I I want to be a millionaire. Okay. The reason that I was able to go after wealth was because I experienced a lot of poverty, right? And poverty pissed me off. It was painful and I was tired of it. I remember when it happened, I was 14 years old and my brother teased me around getting, um, you know, he had a, a little motorcycle and I didn't. he let me sit on it, rev it, and then he pushed me off and he'd ride off laughing in my face. <laughs> this is so much fun. And that yeah. bothered me so much that I, I worked every day after school making extra money every weekend until the day I was 14, I bought my own little scooter. So if you don't access the emotion, it's going to be really hard to overcome the obstacles to lead a great life.
1: All right. What's up next?
0: So the next one is what I call the power of physiology. Most people don't use their body to their advantage. And so I learned this from Tony is state change physiology first. I'll be well known for doing pushups in the office or squats when I'm pumping gas I'm constantly priming my body to serve me, not to let it slow me down or feel bad. I'm a vegan. I fuel my body with uh, a plant-based diet. And I think that most people, unfortunately, don't understand that the food that you eat requires energy to digest. So they bog themselves down. They know more about the fuel they put in their vehicle than they do about the fuel they put in the vehicle called the body. And they, therefore, never operate at the level I do. I'm 57 years old and I have an insane amount of energy. And people are like, how do you do it? Well, it's like anything else. Success leaves clues. I could tell you, but guess what? Most people won't want to do it. Oh, you know what? It's okay to eat this or eat that. It doesn't really matter. I just think physiology is a big part of success. What do you think?
1: Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. I would say, look, I haven't met a tired, exhausted employee who who's really focused, or or just not even an employed person who's focused on their goals and patient with people. And I mean, it, it, it yeah, it impacts everything.
0: Remember when Michael Jordan had the food poisoning? Did you get yeah. to that part yet? Uh, yeah. I mean, he had food poisoning. He ate an entire pizza that that something was off, and um, and he defied that, and he went out and performed the classic last shot win. That's obviously a mental part of the game, but it's also years of physically David goggins saying it, right? is pushing yourself beyond physically what you accept and tolerate in the body. I think physiology is a big part of it. Touched on it is your peer group. Who are you hanging out with? And like one of my coaches said, when I say something, he goes, whose voice is that? <laughs> I go, what do you mean? Whose voice is that? He goes, well, where did you learn to say I'm tired or that'll never work. You didn't make it up. You weren't born saying that phrase. You picked it up somewhere. And I was like, Oh, uh, actually that's John or Mary or my dad. So who you're allowing yourself to be surrounded with is eventually going to set the tone for how you show up. And so then I'm very, you know, intentional about being around people that think bigger than me and are more athletic and stronger, et cetera. So when you start to combine all those great decision maker, self-discipline, physiology first, be around great people, and you have a burning desire, you're going to be pretty close to being unstoppable.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that feels like a, a, a pretty strong, there's no shortcuts or hacks in that, but that feels like a pretty strong recipe for success.
0: Yeah, I mean, the principles of success don't change over time. That's why it's so fun. We just add different stories to them and our different insights on them, but you know, they don't really change. So all you have to do is get to know them, romance them, build them, and then implement them and your life will be great.
1: Do the work. All right, Rock, last question for you. What's a personal or professional mistake? And this could be singular, or repeated that you've learned the most from.
0: So I was really good at making money. And I am very good at making money, but I didn't have a, a peer group of people that helped me make decisions around investing it for most of my life. Huh. So I sold the business for four million. Really good at running a business, making the money. Then I took the million, I put it in the stock market, and lost it all. I invested in literally invested a gold mine in Australia with my brother-in-law. Lost two hundred fifty thousand dollars. I gave one hundred ten thousand dollars to my best friend, and he lost it in the investment. I gave two hundred thousand dollars to a friend of mine who had a friend that was needed it short term, and I was going to make fifty percent return in one month. Uh, hello, maybe yeah. that doesn't make sense. <laughs> What's his name, right?
1: Bernie?
0: <laughs> 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 exactly. So, so I now teach because of that, Robert. The, the Robert Kielzacky Cash Flow Quadrants is. I was a great employee. If you know the quadrants, I was yeah. really good at self-employed. I was actually really good at small businesses, and then I got to the investment quadrant, and I was a complete idiot, and I had no mentors. So today, I surround myself literally with people that are worth $100 million and I invest with them or I give them my money. And as an example, I'm up 60% this year in the stock market. My investments in student housing, 19% per year for the last three years without doing anything, just give it to the operator. I'm into industrial and self-storage because of what's going on with COVID. We've pivoted and we move our money to that because that's the next explosive asset class. So I'm comfortable and consistently getting between 20 and 50% returns on my investment. That is radically different to what I did during my 30s and 40s where I took my heart and money and I lost
1: it all. That's a very good lesson. So, Rock, how can people learn more about you and your work?
0: RockThomas.com. You can go there. You'll learn a whole bunch. You'll get a whole bunch. You can go to my podcast, which has just been rebranded. It's now called Rock Your Money, Rock Your Life, and you'll hear some really cool interviews uh, there on how to really find the vehicle. Here's what I believe in teaching Robert is: there's a vehicle for you, for everybody, that will help them become financially free. We just have to find out which one resonates with you, and then we need to place that firmly on the ten rules of success and when you have those rules and you practice them and you get better at them then you are pretty much guaranteed to have this my belief is an epic life where you can you know be free and that's my goal is to help people become financially free so they can spend more time with their families and doing stuff that they really love
1: yeah i was in one of my mastermind groups this morning and the word freedom was the most common thing discussed (laughs) in one of the scenarios that people were doing things for different various versions of freedom.
0: It is the very core after doing this for 30 years, Robert, when you ask people, people want cars and they want houses and they want businesses and all that, but they don't really want that because when you have a business, you have responsibilities and you're still stuck. There's degrees of pacificity. So I think you hit the nail right on the head. What people want is this feeling of freedom. Everything else is the vehicle or the means to get that emotional state. So, so I cut to the chase, and I say, let's create the path and the process to get there. You can do what you want with your time. You want to sit on the beach and drink pina coladas, great. You want to go climb mountains. You want to go start charities. You want to open another ten businesses, great. But let's first get you free.
1: Sage advice. Well, Rock, thanks for uh, sharing your story with us today. You shared some great wisdom, and I hope people will take it to heart.
0: Yeah, my pleasure as always, Robert. Thanks so much for uh, having me on your podcast.
1: All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Rock and his work on a detailed episode page at Robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode with Rock, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. It helps new users discover the show and the content. It only takes two seconds. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, select the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down to the bottom to leave your rating a review. Thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating.